Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, this week, <laughs> this one's one of my favorite episodes we've done so far this year. I love it. We're talking to singer Ian McNabb. I think most people in the States probably rec- uh, remember Ian for fronting the excellent early 80s alternative rock band, The Icicle Works. Their one big hit in the States was this one. It cracked the top 40 in 1984, Birds Fly, Whisper to a Scream. Still, in my opinion, not only one of the greatest singles ever, but really one of the greatest songs, one of the greatest recorded bits of music that's ever been. I feel like this music is still, this song in particular, is still so powerful, so amazing. I'm so glad that it exists and that it's still out there and that we can enjoy it whenever we want. I love this song. I love this band. Icicle Works were great. They were around for a while. And then in the 90s, he eventually called it off and he went solo. And he's been solo ever since. And he's done a lot of interesting work. Early on, he worked with Neil Young's Crazy Horse. We talk about that in here. But for the last few years, he's been on a massive winning streak. Um, The last like four or five albums have been incredible, including the one that just came out this year called Utopian. 20 tracks, it's epic. You know, we talk about Neil Young, and I mention that specifically because that's a real touchstone for Ian, you can tell. Uh, Not that he's so much modeled his career on Neil, but Neil is definitely an influence. So, if you're less familiar with Ian's solo work, but you're a Neil Young fan, by all means, check out all of Ian's solo work. It's fantastic, especially the last few albums. The reason I love this conversation so much is because Ian is two of the best things you can have in a guest. He's funny and he's honest. And it is excellent. I love when people are like that. He talks about the music he's into. He talks about, I was totally prepared not to even really go near the Icicle Works, but we go deep on the history of that band and the creation of this song in particular, which was a real blessing. So I hope If all you know is Birds Fly, that you are going to hear a lot of other stuff that really interests you because it's worth it. Again, especially the last few uh, Ian McNabb solo albums, okay? Uh, I hope you love this conversation as much as I did. It's one of my favorites we've ever had. He called me from his home in Liverpool, of course. I'll just look at Bowie. Yeah, there, there you go. Yes. Well, so did you ever meet Bowie? No, I don't, oh God, I don't think I would have been able to handle that one. Really? Uh, my, my friend Ian McCulloch from Echo and the Bunnymen met him a couple of times. Or as, or as Ian says, he met me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I didn't. I've met quite a, quite a few superstars and, you know, most of them were okay. But no, yeah. I was, never had that uh, good fortune to meet uh, Bowie. Yeah. Uh. I, uh, it's funny you mentioned Ian. I just talked to Will uh, a few months ago. Yeah, well, he's got his book out, hasn't he? It's so funny. He didn't mention the book at all. And the book was, he announced the book like a week later. And I was like, why, why didn't you tell me about the book? And he said, well, I, w- I wasn't ready to talk about it. But it was literally days after I talked to him that he oh, announced funny. the book. I'm really pleased that Will's getting all of this attention and. His success with his book because he's he's been sort of sidelined mm-hmm. over the past you know long time really yes 
Um, so I think it's it's really terrific. That, and it's a great book. It's very funny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've known Will. Well, I don't know him that well, you know, but I've, I have known him for about 35 years. And I just never knew any of that stuff, you know, mm-hmm. because he, he doesn't really, he's, he plays his cards very close to his chest, you know. Mm-hmm. He is a, a quiet, quiet one. Mm-hmm. And uh, to, to see that he's done all that and some of the stories are so funny, you know, and obviously coming coming from the same area in the world as him, mm-hmm. you know, all the things he's saying about Melling, you know, I mean, Melling to me is posh. Really? <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and to, to hear him, get, I mean, they had a garden, you know, I mean, I, <laughs> I come from a place called Kensington, which is literally two rooms up, two rooms down. And a backyard and no toilet or bathroom. You know, that's we had it tough, you know, we had it really tough. So so when he's going on about his dad welding the windows shut and everything to make his house a very cozy Victorian hospital, I go, luxury, luxury life. No, No, he's he's great, Will. He's great. He is great. He's a good guy. Okay, I wanted to we'll, let's kick off talking about the new album Utopian because here here's the thing. So I I uh, of course was a I loved Icicle Works when I was a kid, and um, then you went solo, which I always wondered why, and I'm going to ask you more about that later. And um, you are almost exhaustively pro- prolific, especially mm. these last few years. Yeah. Every year or two, there's a new album. And it's going to be 14 songs at least. It's going to be an hour long. It's going to rock. It's going to be really dense and awesome. And here's another one. And this one has 20 tracks. Now, it's funny. I read somewhere that the the last three albums are meant to be a trilogy. And then I saw a post of yours on Facebook saying, well, is it really? Or is that just what people say to make you buy all three albums? So are your last three albums a trilogy? What's the story here? <laughs> Do you know what I, I, I saw? I mean, we love trilogies now, don't we? Uh huh. Um, we we love we love them. I, I saw. I read an interview once with Steve Miller um, when he did the um, what was the album with "Fly Like an Eagle," and yeah. and he did "Book of Dreams," and they came out like almost a few months apart. And I remember him saying, "Listen, I've done a lot of hard work here." If I'm going to become a really successful rock star, I ain't messing about. I'm going to have something to come out right away. As soon as everybody realizes how great I am, I'm going to be great again. And I just thought, oh, I can see the sense in that. Because you you make an album, you exhaust yourself, and then it does what it does. And then, you know, six months later, a year later, you start thinking about doing another one. Uh-huh. And I, I just figured when when I got around to making the first one, of the trilogy, mm-hmm. uh, Star Smile Strong. I had, a, for some reason, there was a great visitation of energy and I had a lot of songs coming at me. It doesn't always happen like that. So I went s- straight into the, the next album with a different band and, and a more rocking sound, you know, mm-hmm. it was a bit of a different thing. And then I thought, oh, well, these have gone really well. It was like one came out in 2017 and one came out in 2018. And then, we toured a lot in, in 2019 and then I was going to turn 60 and it was my 20th studio. Uh, it was going to be my 20th studio album. 
And I thought, wouldn't it be great to do a double with 20 songs on? Mm. Set myself a task. I've never, I've always made albums that were too long, mm-hmm. but they, were, they weren't technically double albums, you know? Right. <laughs> so, you know, that means one CD has 45 minutes on and the other CD has 45 minutes on. Uh-huh. Two pieces of vinyl. And so that, that became the thing. And I thought, oh, and it could be a trilogy, you know? And then, and then I thought, and also, it, you know, maybe if, if this one, because all of a sudden, as soon as I said I was doing a double album, uh, people were like, oh, that's interesting. And I thought, well, maybe if I call it a trilogy and this does really well, I can sling all the unsold copies of the last two that I've got in the cellar because people are going to say, hey, man, this is a trilogy. You've got to have the trilogy, you know. Did it work? I've still got plenty of stock downstairs. You know, I, I, all the other albums haven't sold out. But mm. it, it, it's loosely a trilogy, uh-huh. mainly because they were all done very close together, you know. So it's not a thematic trilogy, but it is a trilogy of creativity, it sounds like. You've been oh, yeah. on, I mean, I would think from Krugerrands till now, it's been nonstop. Every... It's yeah. like you. It's like this faucet that won't get turned off. It seems like know, for it's, you, it's, right? I'm, well, obviously, I'm very pleased about that. Yeah, and <laughs> um, especially pleased about the fact that what I've, I've just completed is um, 40 years ago in 1981, uh, the Icicle Works did our first demo cassette, mm-hmm. and it, it had <laughs> first of all it had six tracks on it, then it had seven. And it was just a cassette we did, recorded at home, very, very basic, very embryonic songs, me still learning how to write songs. Mm-hmm. And we were kind of into, we, we were really into like early Human League and, and um, XTC, and we were re- obviously we were really into the Bunny Men and the Teardrop Explodes and OMD, and we were really into uh, Magazine and early Ultravox. And Everybody you're mentioning your, are my favorite bands. Yes. And Joy Division oh. and all of this stuff that I mean, you know, you're younger than me, so you you won't know what it was like for that to happen. You know, I mean, you know, never mind the bollocks came out when I was seventeen. You know, can you imagine that? I mean, you know, that that era. I remember, you know, hearing about God Save the Queen, the forty-five, mm-hmm. and you read about it. It didn't get played on the radio. And we didn't have the internet. Yeah. And so how do we get this fucking record? You know, what is it? You know, and apparently it's the most dangerous thing you've ever heard. And, you know, I saw the lyrics and they're like, they were bringing it out during the Queen's Jubilee year. And it was just so subversive. And eventually I got the money together, you know, to go and and yet to find a copy. Where did you you buy it? Uh, this story is giving me goosebumps, by the way. Yeah, I bought it in a in a store in Liverpool called Probe Records, mm. which was like that. I mean, Pete Burns from Dead or Alive used to work in there. No uh, you, you know, it was it was just yes. unbelievable. And I used yeah. to go in this record store before punk, just kind of as punk was poking through. And you'd go in there, and it was a terrific record store. But I wasn't quite aware of what it was hip to buy at that point. I was still kind of into me progressive rock and, mm. you know, me Led Zeppelins and all that kind of stuff because I was still only 15. But Pete Burns used to work behind the, the, the counter in there to earn, earn himself a bit of money. And you'd walk up to the 
up to the counter. I remember I walked up with a, a Barclay James Harvest album. They were kind of like a prog rock band from Oldham, UK. And, and he was like, I'm not selling you that shit. Fuck off. Come back and there's somebody else behind the tail. You're not buying that crap. Buy a pair Ubu album, you know. Anyway, so I got God Save the Queen from there. Brought it home, a little 45, with Did You Know Wrong. I think Did You Know Wrong was on the B-side. I had to wait till my parents had gone out to put the record on because it was that dangerous. And I was just there on my own and I put it on and it was like, (laughs) making sure that the neighbours couldn't hear it, you know, and then kind of pushing the curtains back in case the police turned up. That's how it was. So that that that's where and coming from Liverpool in the seventies, you couldn't be a musician from Liverpool because of the Beatles, you know, because the the shadow yeah was so long it cast it. Yeah. It was like how can you compete with the the biggest phenomenon that there's, there's ever been? However, right. I do have to say that the Beatles weren't cool in the seventies. It was mm-hmm. they were they were past, you know. Yeah, and you know we were into Bowie and T Rex and all this. Yeah. But anyway, they still cast the shadow. So when all this punk and new wave stuff started coming through, we realised that it was possible to have a band and you didn't have to write something as earth-shattering as Hey Jude, you know. Mm -hmm. You could do something like Waiting for the Man by the Velvet Underground, Mm -hmm. you know. You didn't really have to be able to play great. You just had to have Mm -hmm. something interesting to say. Mm -hmm. So we eventually got around to forming this band, called it The Icicle Works, and we were into those artists that I just told you about. And we did this recording, and it was very primitive and, you know, very naive. And then we carried on writing songs, and the band changed direction a little bit. We became a little bit more sort of psychedelic and jangly. You know, we we, we weren't as electronic, if you like. Yeah. Anyway, I, I realised it was the 40th anniversary of, of that cassette coming out called Ascending. And I thought, wouldn't it be great for me to record those songs now properly? Just me, with all the technology that's available, because, you know, it it was very roughly recorded. So I did, and, you know, the thing that I was really pleased about was I could still sing the songs in the same key, because they're quite high up there, you know. I don't know if I could sing them every night live, you know, but I could certainly get good takes in the studio. So that's what I've just done. So it feels like full circle to me now. It'd be a good time for me to die. You know? <laughs> it's all you know, out of things to say the, right the now. The teeth are all crossed and the eyes are all dotted. You know, right. it's come full circle. Sixty years of age, twenty studio albums, and re-recording the very first thing I ever did. It, yeah. it just feels like a perfect arc. So it I'm really excited does. about that. You know, yeah. it's, it's it's a funny one. It does. It, it does feel, I mean, I don't feel, I don't think anybody really feels that much different to how they did when they were 20. Mm. I mean, physically, maybe things were a little more difficult, you're a bit wider, you know, mm. whatever. And, you know, you tend to hurt. I, I mean, I, the only the only screaming that comes out of my bedroom these days is me trying to get out of bed, you know. <laughs> right. um, but everything else is pretty much the same. So, right. Yeah, it's it's been, okay. it's been yeah. I've been noticing on your website the ascending that ascending album is 
slated to come out hopefully this fall, September, yeah, October, no, somewhere. It's, it's just it's gone off to the factory, but the the vinyl, it's, the vinyl pressing's running really slow at the moment because. Mm everybody's making records because we haven't been able to tour, you know. Yeah. And ev every self-respecting musician now has got some kind of recording set up yeah. in their home. I mean, you know, because it's so cheap and so easy. Yeah. And the results are so good, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I used to have a 16-track analog set up in my basement, and you know, 20 years ago, and I tore it out because I spent more time trying to get the fucking stuff to work yeah. Than I did actually making records, but yeah. now you know you just go. There you go. Sounds <laughs> it's great. done. Yeah. So um, hopefully, uh, yeah, it'll definitely be out in the uh, in the fall. Good. Yeah. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you specifically about some of the songs off Utopian. I think um, I know what some of my favorites are, but I think I saw you post recently on Facebook that Running Out of Stuff was getting mm. some play by Tom Robinson on his yeah. show. Is that the single? Is running out of stuff the single from the album? Single. I mean, I don't bother with that anymore. I managed to get that out of my system, you know, because I come from a, a pop, pop stroke rock background, and I do love pop music. You know, I still love to write great little pop songs. They're the hardest ones to do. You know, you can ramble on for seven minutes of, about anything, but writing a three and a half minute song with a great intro and a great chorus and a great middle bit and a great ending and a good lyric and for it to all be over and done that quickly that's really hard so i still like to try and set myself a task to do that but i got past the idea of hey man this is a fucking hit forget it you know what forget it what 60 year old bearded old guy who used to be in a band years ago that had something about, you know, we are, we are, we are. He's got a new record out. It's catchy. He thinks we should play it. Fuck <laughs> off. We got no chance, you know. Yeah. But occasionally, and I don't even attempt, I don't even send it anymore, you know. Really? Because <laughs> what's the point? And yeah. then, and because I know everybody that the radio stations, uh -huh. so they'll get the CD or whatever, and then I won't hear anything. 
So then I have to get in touch with them and say, hey, man, did you get the record? Did you get a chance to hear my new song? Did you get a chance to listen to my record? And then they haven't listened to it or they've listened to a couple of tracks and they didn't like it. You know, so and it just brings a load of anxiety. So forget it, you know. Um, Oh, this is the best. You're the best, Ian. Oh, my gosh. Forget it. You know, don't kid yourself that you're going to have a hit. You ain't. You know, maybe if somebody... Puts it in a fucking movie or something. Uh-huh, you, know? Uh-huh. you know, if somebody's on YouTube and they go, I mean, you know, but um, Whisper to a Scream earns me a lot of money. One Does it? Okay, that song. was one of my questions. I was going to save it to the end. You, uh, that one still provides a nice living or at least gives you yeah, some money? Was, you know, it only took me as long to write as it do, does to listen to. You know, I didn't know oh, what wow. I was doing. It doesn't mean anything, but it sounds great, you know. It's like, we are, we are. Yeah. What are we? I've got a fucking clue. <laughs> but it sounds good, you know. And it still gets played. And a lot of these film people and advertising people, they, you know, that they were at high school when that was in the charts, you know. I mean, it wasn't even really in the charts. It was in the airplay charts. And then Arista fucking hyped it up to, like, number 30 or something. And then it was gone again. But... Once you have a record that pokes through in the United States or Canada, they don't forget you. Yeah. And there's an awful lot of radio stations that love to play old stuff. I mean, we used to think, oh, man, it's just oldies. Mm. You know, I mean, all that's gone now. Now it's Mm. now you're a heritage act. Right. (laughs) And I think I think because music hasn't been so great in, in the past, you know, 10 15 years that you know i mean there's some great new music coming through mm-hmm. but the 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 lack of it makes you realize how great a lot of that stuff yes. was yeah you know yeah. i mean for a, a lot for a long time people used to go around going oh man the 80s sucked fucking duran duran boy george fucking shite you know it's yeah. like you're kidding me man what about rem yes fucking, you know i could yes, go on i do on i do on. i grew up with all that uh, and and it's like there was a lo- lot of amazing music around then. And it, do you know what? It sounds even better now. You know? It does. It does. And, and so in answer to your question that I think you were going to ask, it's like, it, you know, a lot, a lot of those people were at high school and they love that song. So when they're now in positions of power and the directors, people like, um, you know, who's the guy that did um, the, Justice League, Zack Snyder. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and all of these cats, they all know that song. Mm -hmm. And if there's a little bit comes up in the film, it's like, hey, I used to love. And, you know, know, they can afford it. Yeah. You know, it's like they've got a budget. They can afford to get in touch with my publisher and say, hey, we'll give you $50,000. We only use a minute and a half of this. And I get an email going, is it okay? And I go, it's fucking okay. It's fine with me. <laughs> you know, my dream was never to be a big rock star, successful musician. My dream was to get paid for doing yeah. absolutely nothing, you know. <laughs> so mission accomplished. You did it. You did it. Okay. I'm going to press pause on all the questions I had about the new stuff because I wasn't sure whether what your openness or willingness to talk about that period would be. And so um, since we're there, I'm going to touch on it and then we'll leave it alone and go back to the new stuff. Okay. Uh, Birds Fly, to me, is one of the greatest singles 
of all time, especially Thank of the of the 80s. I I might even get choked up talking about it because I remember so well being 11 years old and loving that song so much and it's sounding today just as beautiful. I'm getting all goosebumpy again. Just as beautiful and interesting and fresh as it ever did. And uh I I just have to I just have to tell you, Ian, it's one of the biggest, I mean, you've done so much, and we, but this is the one we're talking about now. It's one of the greatest miracles that's ever existed, if you ask me. You talk about Hey Jude, I would take Birds Fly over almost anything ever written or recorded. Well, that, that, that is very, very kind of you to say so, and I genuinely do appreciate it. Trust me, Good. I get a little choked Good. as well. Thank you. Um, the, 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 the strange thing about that song is that we never did anything else like it, you know? No, that, and, exactly. And, and there was a reason for that was because I just thought that's something special. You know, Lou Reed never tried to write another perfect day. Yeah. You know, and it was like, and you know, the record company in America, Arista, Clive Davis, he was like, when we delivered the second album, because there was a couple of songs that 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 first record had that sound, but mm-hmm. well, obviously Birds Fly stood head and shoulders mm-hmm. above pretty much everything else. And when we turned the second record into Arista in at 1985, they they just outright rejected it. You know, really? It, yeah, and and I was like, well, why is that? And he says, you you know, it's it, it hasn't got. We need another Birds Fly. So. Reluctantly, you know, I tried to write something, and it's like I just wrote a couple of songs that sounded a lot like Birds Fly, but weren't anywhere near as good, so they never came out. we got dropped by Arista and we never did anything else that, that sounded like that. It was just a moment. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, trust me, I would, I would have liked it <laughs> if I could have come up with 10 more. Sure. 
sure. that were as good as that. Yeah. But but I, I couldn't, you know, yeah. that was just a moment. Let me ask you this. Like who, you know, the, there are so many unique things about that songs that you aren't hearing in other songs at the time, especially, but even now that like, you know, the, the drums, the way they sound and the bat, the bass being so bouncy yeah. mixed with yeah. the jangly guitar, who's making yeah. those decisions when you're sitting in your bedroom, <laughs> writing birds fly, are you thinking, you know what this song really needs? I don't even know the name of whatever the drum sound is, but that would sound really good right here. And I want the bass, especially bouncy, or is that a production decision? Well, well, Do you make that in the studio? How does it work? We were a three-piece band, so everybody had to really, you know, haul haul a lot. And we we weren't into on the first album. We we weren't into drums that just went boom, jap, boom, jap. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everybody was kind of doing this tribal thing. The bunny men were doing it. We loved uh, Adam and the Ants, mm, and, me too. and and we loved uh, Susie and the Banshees and yes. all of that kind of thing. And it, it was all a bit doom, do, 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 boom, yes. We're trying to do something different. So we had uh, a song. Our first single was called Nirvana. I'm a And Great it tune. was, uh, and it went, and the drums like, do it, 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 and you and because it's a big hit, I tend to drag it out a bit. And like, come on, you know. <laughs> so, so I just figured that um, we had that do it, do it, do it, and I went well. And I had this little set of bongos, and I remember sitting in my parents' bedroom because it was bigger than mine. While I were at work, and it had better acoustics, and I just started going well, instead of going do it, 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 do it. What about if we went? which is kind of a rockabilly thing, but I don't think anybody's done it. It was always, you know, stray cats type thing, sure, you know. Sure. But I hadn't heard anyone go, so I, I, you know, I can't play the drums very well, but uh-huh. I know how to do it. And I went, and I just went, oh, we are, that sounds pretty good. So I made a little dictaphone recording of it, and I went into the rehearsal room with the other two guys, and I just said to Chris Charlotte, the drummer, I said, can you just, can you go like this? So I went, okay, and it's in C. It's only two chords. Mm. 
And then I started jangling over it, and Chris Lay, the bass player, came up with a dung 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 a dung 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 dung. Yeah. So he had oh. that syncopated thing. Yeah. So it was really it it, it swung, you know. Yeah. And um, Chris Shorrock, the drummer's dad, Richard, who used to come and pick him up and take him home. I mean, he was only 15, you know, when we were in, when we started the band. And he'd come in and hear us rehearsing and he'd be like, oh, all right, lads, that sounds good. Yeah, I'll see you, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, he came to pick Chris up and we were playing in the middle of doing birds. Like, it was the first time we'd done it. And he just came in and he went, and he was gobsmacked, you know, he was transformed. And then it finished, and he was like, that's it. You've got your hit. That's it. You've done it. And then he went out to the car and got his wife to come in. And so Chris's parent. And it's just one of those things that comes along. It's a gift. Yeah. And and then we did a demo of it, and then we did a John Peel session thing of it. And just that one song took us from playing in pubs to having A&R men coming to our shows trying to sign us yeah. one song, you know. It's incredible. It, 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 it was, it was a bigger phenomenon in the States, I believe, than in the UK, right? Over there, it was Love is a Different, is a Wonderful I Color mean, was the bigger it hit. Got, right? it, got to, it got to, like, the top of the indie charts in the UK, you know, the independent singles charts. And it got quite a bit of airplay, but it wasn't, a, it didn't get in the proper charts. No, it wasn't a hit by any stretch. But as soon as uh, Beggar's Banquet, our, our UK label, sent it, over to the States, everyone was like, whoa. And, it, you know, we were in the right place at the right time as well because MTV had just started. Yeah. And you know, it was like a second English invasion, that really, yes, wasn't it? it was. You know, you had Tears for Fears and yep. I can't remember the names of all of them, but there were a lot of really good bands. Yeah. And we just fit right in, you know. Yeah, you did. And so, and so then in America, it, it was like, it just happened so fast. And it was over pretty fast as well, I have to tell you. And um, one of the reasons I believe for that, you know, apart from the fact that I definitely didn't write another song that sounded like it, was the fact that we had quite a few people who were, who were trying to sign us. And one of the labels that was interested was Backstreet Records, mm. which was, you know, like that the Tom Petty connection through MCA and all that. Mm. And they were really keen mm. to sign us. But instead of opening the box you know, we took the money or the, the label took the money because Arista wanted us and they offered a lot of money. Clive Davis, blah, blah, blah. But what Arista were after was like, you know, let's throw as much at the wall and see what sticks. Hey, we got an English band too, man. Yeah. And they're from Liverpool. That's even better, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they they went with that. And a th- and then they threw a lot of money out. You know the payola shit goes on. Let's not pretend sure. it doesn't. Yep. And, you know, they got it up there and it was getting added to loads of stations and it kept going, kept going. And then we did a, a, a few tours of America and then it was time for another track from the album and they didn't think that we had one. We'd had a hit in the UK with a song called Love is a Wonderful Colour. Great song.
but it was like you guys just don't know the american market you know that is not a that is not an american record so so they didn't put that out anyway to to wind up on that i think that if we would have gone with backstreet i think we wouldn't have got a big advance but they would have supported us tour wise we would have done a lot of college stuff we would have taken the the rem route yes you know yes we would have played everywhere we would have worked really hard you don't mind being in the back of a, of a station wagon when you're 23 mm. you know it's easy and you're yeah. meeting loads of girls you know you yeah. don't care yeah. and I, I and i don't think they would have rejected the, the second album and i think we we probably would have done done a bit better who knows you know i but think it, you, well it's interesting you say this ian because i so i'm originally from salt lake city utah which um actually has a pretty vibrant alternative rock uh, yeah. scene. Uh, okay. You say, yeah, like maybe, you know, that a lot of people I talk to understand that. And by the time the it's, always leader, been, you know, it's always been hit Salt Lake city, you really? see what the stations are playing yes. and stuff. So, yeah. 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 We have a really good, uh, idea of alternative rock anyway. Appreciate it. And I remember by the time I was older, I was at 11 when you're getting, when birds fly is out, I'm still listening to pop radio. I'm so young, but yeah. a couple of years later, I'm paying more attention to alternative radio. And I remember Evangeline getting a lot of air airplay in Salt Lake City. To me, that was another hit. I, it probably wasn't played on mainstream radio, but it was getting a lot of play where I was. Was well, that, that a that decided, was, kind of a second attempt, maybe, at pushing you guys but, out? You know, but that, that was from the third High School Works album. Um, and that would, RCA took up the option on that one. But they, they didn't want to really spend any money on it. But what they did do was they sent it to all the cool radio stations. And then because we we didn't tour America, we went over it. We did, we played at the Roxy and somewhere else in New York. I can't remember where. I think it might have been the Ritz and somewhere in Philadelphia. We, you know, we basically went over to do like promo shows. Uh -huh. It wasn't a proper tour. And uh, and then we came over and we were busy in Europe, whatever. And, and then people were saying to me, friends in America, although, you know, don't forget, we didn't have the internet. So you, you didn't speak to people regularly. You'd have a phone conversation with, with them occasionally, or maybe you'd write letters mm -hmm. and say, Hey, man, you know, Evangeline and Understanding Jane are getting some really good. Yes, that's great. another one.
and, and that was the only way that I found out about it, you know. And then we did another album, the last Blind. one, Blind. And I, I can't even remember what, I think maybe did that come out on, I don't know what label that came out on. But, you know, by that time, the, the band was, you know, women became involved mm. and and everything changes then because you've got the, the somebody's girlfriend saying, hey, how much are you getting paid? You know, yeah. how come he's getting more money than you? And, you know, and all, all of this kind of stuff started happening. So it was kind of over by then, mm. you know. But the funny thing is, still to this day, people like your good self. I, I, I speak to a lot of people who are usually maybe 10 years younger than me, uh, maybe a little bit less than that, and and they they still hold the icicle works in very high regard. Huge. It's 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 kind of it. We were perceived differently in America uh, as to how we were here. Mm -hmm. We never really got a, a great deal of respect in the UK. We Weird. we didn't really. I think maybe it was because we we flitted stylistically with with so many different things, and we weren't particularly political. You know, you tend to get a lot of mileage over here if you like the Smiths or something. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got something to say. Uh, if if you're not an out and out pop band, you've got to have like an agenda. And we didn't really have that. You know, yeah. we yeah. we always kind of kept away from all of that stuff. Yeah, it's interesting because to me, yes, everything you're saying is right. Being a kid growing up then, uh, idolize listening to a lot of alternative radio, and therefore, and you're. It's so exotic. This sound from Birds Fly is like nothing I've ever heard. Uh, Evangeline, Love is a Wonderful Color. They're British. They must be legends over there, you know? But yeah, I think some of us who grew up with that in the States, hold, like you said, hold you in these in high regard because we it's just kind of, it's, take it's with like the songs. It's, a, it's like it's a little more exotic, isn't it? Yes. I mean, one, one thing that I always say that I always try and pretend doesn't bother me but it, it does less less these days, is that like the UK radio and press are very more, much more likely to give somebody from America space in their magazines or, or radio play because it's kind of exotic, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, we just love hearing about some guy that's, that's recorded his album in his shack in Doorknob, Wisconsin, you know. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's a lot more exciting than some guy in Manchester doing it, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and I get that, you know. Yeah. It's like this week, you know, so-and-so uh, from Buttfuck, Idaho. And it's always a guy in a plaid shirt with a beard, you know, and he's usually had a rough time, you know. And uh, it's always the same. And he's, he's usually just got off heroin. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and it's like he's, he's slaying demons. And now he's with this achingly beautiful new album, which isn't sad to listen to. It's euphoric in its... Right. And just always, like, just fuck off with you, you know. Yes. Look, I haven't got a heroin habit, okay. <laughs> but I'm funny. Why don't you interview me? Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's genius. Okay, I got to ask you a couple questions about Blind. First of all, that album cover is unforgettable. Who thought of that album cover? What, the English one or the American one? Oh, the well, the American one with the fish eyes. Okay, I've got a funny story about that. Okay, tell us. It was different in the UK. Yeah. 
but the Americans were like, you know, you guys really do not understand the American market. You can, you know, everything has to be different in America. Anyway, so the, the, the American record company sorted that sleeve out. So I went over in 88 when it came out to do some promotion. And there was this guy, I can't remember his name, but he used to manage Iggy Pop. Ooh. And he, he was a, a really well-revered writer. It, it might have been, was it Danny Fields? Uh, might be. It was, he, it I was think one of those, I can't remember his name, a gay guy. you know, Danny Fields. Yeah, I think it was him. Anyway, they were like, hey, we've got you this interview. I'll say Danny Fields now because I think that's who it was. And he used to manage Iggy and he, you know, he discovered the doors and, you know, and all, you know, he was a dude. He worked for Electra Records for yep. a while and what have you. Anyway, he goes, and he's, he, he's really anxious to meet you, you know. And I'm like, really? Okay, cool. So we're in New York and I go to this place and he's waiting there and I turn up. And he just looks at me like that, you know. And he was expecting the guy on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was like a really good-looking model. Yeah, I was going to say, he I, thought that guy was good-looking. <laughs> and I, I turned up looking like Jerry Garcia, you know. So I could tell he just wasn't fucking interested from that point on. And he had all of these questions and everything, and but he just sat there in a slump, you know. And, <laughs> so... That song, Little Girl Lost. Uh, it's about a girl, right? Okay, I'm done. Thank you. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> um, okay, one song off that album I want to know about. You talk about things, always trying new things and never kind of writing the same song twice. Shit Creek uh, goes off. I mean, that is guitar work fire. What inspired that song? Another little funny sidebar to that. Um, when I first got to America, went and they presented me with the vinyl of the American version and the you know different running order and uh -huh. you know blah blah blah. I used to hate it, you know. Anyway, so I stuck it on in the office and Shit Creek comes on. I think it was track two or three. It uh -huh. was the first track on the English album. And in Shit Creek, there's a bit at the end of it where it goes, and then it goes silent for about five seconds, and it goes, and it comes back in. So I, so I put the vinyl on, and I'm listening to it. Anyway, it goes silent. 
and then it goes into the next track. So whoever cut the album thought that was the end of the track. Oh. So I was a popleptic about that. Yes. So they got like the, the two minutes 30 version because where it comes back in is really where it goes off. Yes. yes. The reason yes. why, we, the reason why we, we did that track was because we were on the same label in the UK as The Cult. Oh. And The Cult decided in about 1987 that they, they were Led Zeppelin, you know. Mm-hmm. So we went, no. <laughs> Not even close. So we did, we did Shit Creek to, to piss off uh, Billy and Ian from The Cult. And it did, you know. Really? <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was so just, great. I mean, it, it, it was, it was, I mean when, when you consider that the same band that did Birds Fly, Whisper to a Scream, uh-huh. did Shit Creek. Uh, that's you can, exactly. You can yes. kind of understand why we never made it, you know. Yes. <laughs> I mean, how, how the hell do you market that? You it's kind of true. It's kind of yeah. true. Um, okay, so you go solo. And it's funny, I when I was getting ready to interview you, I was, of course, re-listening to everything. And I was going back to uh, the fire inside my soul. And I thought, well, this is really Ian's just exorcism of everything that's going on until that point. It's that yeah. eight and a half minutes of like, this is the story. And I thought that almost says it all right there. What was going yeah, on with you that you needed to get fire inside my soul out of your soul? Well, what happened with that was, uh, yeah, it was kind of autobiographical and up to that point in 1993 when I wrote it. And then when I finished it, um, I, I I sent a very, very rough demo, just, I mean, just me playing a really horrible sounding guitar and singing into a dictaphone. It was unlistenable. But the record company that I was with at that point, This Way Up, they they wanted to do something a bit different for me. So, so get me noticed, if you like. So they said, well, that sounds, sounds a little bit like Neil Young's band, you know. So... He said, well, what about if we if we see if we can get Crazy Horse to play it with you? And I went, uh, no. I, I said, I'll tell you what, just give me the money and I'll make it sound like Crazy Horse, you know. <laughs> and he says, no, but if you if we can get them, you'll get a lot of press and you'll get a, you know. So anyway, we, we ended up doing that. And that was the first song I did with them, which was it was a good one to do with them because it goes boom, 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 and it's in G, you know? <laughs> so, uh, so that, that, and then 
I wrote the, the, another verse when I found out I was going to be doing it that way. And that kind of became the summary. I mean, I, you know, I mean, originally it was like four minutes long. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you're playing with Crazy Horse, it's like once you eventually get the track to start it, it's very difficult to, to, to stop, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and they kind of have all of that solo and stuff going on. And you, you sort of fall into it and I can, yeah. I can do it. And, you know, and Billy Talbot, the bass player from Crazy Horse, once said to me, you know, just because a song's finished doesn't mean you have to stop playing, you know. Because mm. the, some of their endings are, are longer than the song. <laughs> That's true. That's true. He told me, he said, sometimes when they play with Neil Young, they'll, they'll do one show and there'll be like, you know, 18 songs in, in, in the show. And then the next night they'll do twelve songs, but the show's longer. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. I feel like I read somewhere or heard you say in an interview years ago that Neil was kind of pissed off about this. Was he? Well, I had two. two th- I mean, I, I spoke to him about it, and he and he wasn't, you know. Okay. But um, but but somebody told me that he he, he felt when he heard it that I'd stolen the, the, the sort of sound, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, yeah, I, I, you know, talent borrows, genius steals. Yeah. You know, I wasn't going to play with Crazy Horse and sound like fucking Steely Dan, was I, you know? But, but when I spoke, I mean, I've, I've, I've met Neil plenty of times and it depends what kind of mood he's in. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, and I kind of got that. I mean, when he heard it, it, it sounds, and it, it, the other thing is it sounded a lot posher than Crazy Horse does with him because he just basically records everything and put, just puts it out, you know, whereas we spent a lot of time. We, we didn't uh, fuck about with it. We, we just did a lot of versions and, and it was a lot nicer recorded and, you know, and I do have a bit of a problem about things that are out of tune, so I will fix my vocal, you know, right. stuff like that. But, you know, that, that got a lot of attention sure, purely because I was doing something with them you, you, you wouldn't have thought to put you two together is now i of course especially on these last well i'll say four albums going back to crew brands uh ever since you kind of plugged back in you were sort of doing those acoustic albums there for a while uh i hear a lot of neil and i don't know if that's my brain telling me well they worked with he worked with crazy horse so that's what i no, hear I mean, are you as big a neil guy as we as it sounds. Oh, yeah. yeah, more so, you know. Really? And yeah, you do you do hear, I mean, especially on stuff like Hurricane Lane. I mean, it's it's almost yes. lack of it, which it sounds like here. Yeah. Turn me. 
But I, I, I just figured I'd better start doing that because uh, when Neil eventually keels over, the baton can be handed <laughs> to me. And I can, because nobody else is doing it, you know. Yeah. So I, yeah. you know. I mean, yeah. I, it, it, I'm very influenced by with a lot of the rock and roll stuff. I don't really know how else to play. When I'm rocking out, I, I'm not a, a shredder, uh-huh. you know. I, I either tend to sound like Keith Richards or Neil Young, you know, mm-hmm. with the rhythm thing or or, or the, the, the one note guitar solos. And um, I make no apologies for it, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, uh, but it's not the only thing I do. You know, that's no, the, the no, thing that I like. Not. The thing that I like is be- because you can't say, oh, we McNabb just does Neil Young or yeah. he does this. There's so many different types of totally. things. And I like that. But it makes it very difficult to to market, mm-hmm. which is why I, I have like a cult audience. Mm. And it's a, it's a small but devoted following, which enables me to keep doing what I'm doing and I stand stand or fall by my own decisions. You know, if something doesn't sell, it was me that wanted to put it out and it was me that wanted that running order. And I wanted to put that kind of weird track at the front instead of bury it on side two, which is probably why the guy at the radio station turned it off after one minute, you know? (laughs) Right. But that was my decision. Yeah. One of my favorite songs on the new album is You Bring Good Things. And I think it's because, uh, first of all, I mean, that piano intro just sounds so good and it sounds kind of uh, happy. I don't know, sort of poppy a a little bit. And um, it's different than a lot of the other rockers on there. What's the story of You Bring Good Things? I mean, you talk about how there's 20 songs, so they're not all going to sound the same. That's one of them. Yeah, well, um, that's probably the most commercial thing on there. That that was Mm. just, I mean... the piano thing that that my producer Kieran came up with that. I mean, it's it's kind of re- reminiscent a little bit of Andrew Gold, and it's got a bit of a Love whole of, whole of the Moon Water Boys yes. kind of thing yes, going on. That's what it reminds me of. And um, yeah, I mean, it was just a bit of a throwaway, to be honest with you. You know, but, but I don't think there's anything wrong with a, a really good throwaway pop song. I don't think there's any singles on Utopian by any stretch of the imagination. I, I don't think you could pull anything off and say that's a hit. Uh-huh. I, I don't I don't think that there's a hit on it. I think you have to kind of listen to the whole thing. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, Harry Dean Stanton's got 
quite a bit of traction because it's called Harry Dean Stanton. Worm inside the bottle Mental in your throat One foot on the throttle One arm in your coat There's a rumbling in the distance And everything is broke I was just going to say that, yes. And people go, oh, you've, well, what's this Harry Dean Stanton thing? You know, even if they're familiar with my work and they're not too bothered about hearing it. You know, I got a, a, a personal message off Peter Parrott from the only ones who, are, who I've never met, but we speak on Facebook occasionally, telling me how fucking fantastic Harry Dean Stanton was. And he's never commented on anything I've ever done. Wow. And, and that, you know, that's, to, to me... That's success. Yes, yes. You know, yes. when Great. somebody you admire so much like, like that comes back and says, and I didn't send it to him. He you just found it, it on his own? It cropped up. You know, it's one of those things that, you know, Harry Dean Stanton, if somebody that I'd never heard of had a song called Harry Dean Stanton, I'd press play, <laughs> you know, because I love Harry Dean Stanton, you know. And, and that's kind of a, a trick that's yeah. very hard to orchestrate. It just, it either happens or it doesn't, yeah. you know? Yeah, you nailed it. Uh, I want, okay, one other thing, and it's on one of the other albums. I got I wrote it, I, I, I never remember exactly how the words go. Pampered pop star, millionaire, miserable list, blues. Yeah. <laughs> Purposely drawing on David Bowie's fame with that vocal breakdown at the end. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And and it was kind of like I, I that I mean it, that's a bit of a throwaway track, but it came out quite good. Uh -huh. And it's it, it was a bit of a piss take of Lenny Kravitz, you know. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I, I like Le Lenny's first couple of records, and then it's like same. Why? You know. Yeah. 
I'm, I'm, gl- I'm glad that you you got everything you wanted, but I don't need to hear it anymore. Uh-huh. <laughs> and also, you know, the, the fact that you, so many really successful musicians complain all the time, you know. I mean, how can you be that fucking miserable in Radiohead? Everybody loves you. You sell out everywhere you go. Walk a mile in my shoes, motherfucker. I'm I'm lucky if I can get 150 people to come and see me. And what are you complaining about, you know? So that that was a little pop of that. And then at the end, for a laugh, you know, we did that... uh, what, what am I saying at the end? Of the is it whinge? I was trying yeah. to figure it out too. Whinge, you know, complain, whinge. Yes. I'm going, yes. whinge, 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 whinge. And, so you know, good. I have to thank you because you're the only person I've ever done an interview with in 20 years that has mentioned that song. Really? Oh, I caught it immediately. That was so genius, I thought, you know? Oh, that was great. Yes. I love that. Um, Love it when people when people bring up a deep cut that I've that I've forgotten about, you know. Oh, I love it. When you do albums, you know, and then you when you're promoting them, you you get to you try and play maybe about four or five tracks uh-huh. off the album on on your tour, uh-huh. and you know, sometimes they all go well, but eventually you'll whittle it down to. Th- Four, yeah. and then the next gig there'll just be three and then if you can end up with one track off every album in your set list you're doing pretty good you know yeah so a lot of them i haven't forgotten them but i, I haven't revisited yeah. them since since the, i made them you know well i uh i mean i already had tons of them but i went back to make so they were all fresh to get ready to talk to you um you mentioned about the people, the number of people coming to your show. I mean, when I, one of the things that sort of has become clear following you on social media and everything for the last few years is that it, uh, I mean, you sort of alluded to this earlier, you've put your whole career in your own hands. I mean, there's not a label pushing anything. There's barely radio play. You have to be out there grinding and hustling to be heard and to be seen and to anything that's going to happen is going to happen because you worked for it. Is that now some artists find that really freeing? I don't have to be a part of a label. I don't have a boss. I do what I want. And some Ooh. people, it's exhausting. Where do you, but you seem really good at it and maybe good with it. Where do you stand on that? Well, uh, first of all, you know, I haven't got any kids. I'm, uh, I'm, not, I'm not married. Okay. Um, I, I spend most of my time caring for my mom, who's, who's 87. I'm, so I'm Is she okay, by the way? Yeah, she's good, thank you. Okay. We just had a little wobble, but we're good. Yeah. Okay. So I figure, and I don't, I don't tour outside of the UK purely from the point of view. I mean, I've been offered a, a number of tours in America, main, mainly coming from the sort of nostalgia angle, which I don't mind. But it's just so damn expensive to come over, and you've got your withholding tax and. And the, the visas are ridiculous. I mean, American acts can come over here for fifty pounds, you know. But if we want to come over, you're talking three or four thousand pounds, you know. It's crazy. And, and you it's don't stopped. make that money back on the tour. So let me interrupt for one. Re- so yeah. For instance, yeah. I went to a lost eighties. I go to all these eighties nostalgia shows because I love yeah. them. And the Vapors were on one recently, 
and I didn't know they were even still doing anything. Sure. And um, they come out, they play their three songs. They're from the UK. And yes, everyone I've talked to, especially people from Australia, my gosh, the guy, David Sterry from real life has to pay thousands of pounds to get over yeah. here. But do you make that up on the shows, your fee to be there? Or are you losing money on this, on tours like that? Well, you know, we did an assessment on a, a, a the last tour I was offered. And I really wanted to do it, you know, and it had mean me using a pickup band in America. Sure. And, you know, there's some great players in America, so I've got no problem with that. You know, you spend two or three days in, in SIR and mm-hmm. you're away, you know, no problem with that. And audiences now are pretty much conditioned to the fact that it's very rare you're going to see all the original members of a band mm-hmm. from the past, as long as you've got the lead singer. And yep. sometimes they don't even have the lead singer, you know. No. But as long as it's got the name of the band and you know you're going to hear blah, 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 three or four tunes that, that you really dig, you know. But we we worked it out and, I, you know, I was getting paid okay money. It wasn't terrific money, but it was pretty decent. But by the time you paid everything else, the only way that you can really kind of make a little bit of money is if you do exceptionally well on the, the merchandise. Uh, you know? mm-hmm. But that's there's no guarantee yeah. That that's going to happen. And also, you can't bring your own merchandise over because it costs too much. So you have to get it made over there, and that, that all has to be fronted. And, you know, it, it's it's very, very difficult to do. So so I don't – when I – you know, I, I usually go around the UK twice a year playing solo acoustic shows, and then I'll do a run of half a dozen gigs as the icicle works, mm-hmm. and we fill pretty big places, mm-hmm. and it's – that's all I need, you know. Mm-hmm. I've I've been around the world many times doing all that stuff. I don't need to do it anymore. Yeah. I, I'm not one of those people who enjoys being on a tour bus. I don't think many people do, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Once you get past once you get past thirty, you know, the, the whole thing of going around and drinking loads and uh-huh. taking loads of drugs and sleeping with women, you know, that eventually you have to stop doing that or you die. Right. Right. Um, and once, once you get past that, basically you, you're talking about traveling a lot, having a lot of hours to fill and everything's mobile and you're usually hanging out with a lot of people and you're all getting on each other's nerves, blah, uh-huh. blah, blah. So I just tour the UK. So the rest of the time I've got plenty of time to make music and then when I get the product, when I get the vinyl and the CDs and what have you, the T-shirts, they all come to my house and they go in my garage and then all the orders come to me. I don't pay anybody to process them for me. Why would I? I'm here. That's just lazy. Yeah. So I'd just be standing over them going, no, you don't do it like that. You do it like this. <laughs> right. I do it myself. It, yeah. You know, I go to the post office with a sack full of CDs and I push them behind the counter and I pay the bill, and then I come back and then do the same again. Wow. And I love doing it. Yeah. It's, you get a tremendous sense of achievement. Yes. And, you know, a lot of the fans, they can't fucking believe that I've written on the envelope because I don't even do that. I don't even do that thing where you print them off on labels because it's too it's too complicated for uh-huh. me to work out how to plug the printer into the computer, you know. So I just sit there and I write all the labels out like that and put them on. And then somebody said, Ian, you write the labels out. Do you write on the envelopes? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, oh, fucking hell, I can't believe I've thrown them all away. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my, my mum likes to, to get involved with it as well, you know. Uh-huh. It's, it's, you know, why not? It's it's great fun. And I'll tell you what, 
selling 5,000 units that you have personally processed and sent out to people as opposed to selling, you know, we used to sell 50, 60,000 records and not knowing who anybody is. And then two records down the line, they don't buy them anymore. Yeah, yeah. Whereas I always sell the same. I'm sometimes a bit more, sometimes a little bit less. Utopian has done a lot better than I have done for a while. I don't know why. Is it better? Not really. There's more (laughs) songs on it. Maybe they they bought it because there's more songs on it. I don't care, but I'm glad they bought it, you know. So, yeah, I am hands-on. Now, I know plenty of rock stars who I won't name from this area who are like, you are. <laughs> they get the manager to do it, you know. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's some of them. It's just. It's not beneath them. It's just not. They can't yeah. do it. Yeah. They don't want to do it. They'd rather do something else. Yeah. Whereas I put music on, and and sit here doing it. You know, it's it's great. It's amazing. And, and 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 I just think the people are so grateful for it. Yeah. And, well, and I, I um, yeah. as you can tell, Ian, I love you so much, and uh, I love everything that you do. I uh, I pay attention to all of it, and I'm so grateful for you. You've been a awesome. dream person for me to talk to for six years. Thank you. I'm sorry I've here. got to cut it short. I've got to do me mum's tea. All right, there you have it. Ian McNabb, like I said, that's one of the best right there. Come on. I loved Ian, and I love that conversation. He is the best. Uh, so I want to close it out. Now, in case you didn't know, the last four albums that are so good, I mean, there's more than that, but the ones that kind of, that I touched on in here, the last one's Utopian. The one before that is called Our Future in Space. This is the title track off of that album. I like that one a lot too. Before that was Star Smile Strong. And before that was Krugerans. You heard me mention that a couple times in here. So again, if you want a starter kit on where to begin with Ian McNabb's solo career, just pick on any one of those last four albums and you're going to love it. Uh, now, next week, our guest is going to be one of the best and most called upon sidemen of the last, like, 45 years, 50 years. And I say sidemen specifically because not so, not so much a session musician, but a sideman. He was a key member of a band that was pretty big in the 70s and 80s, and he's gone on to work very closely with people from that band and many, many others, played on many, many albums you've heard. And love, and uh, that's who's coming up next week. He also has a new solo album coming out. So anyway, huge thanks as always to Yan the Man Makavich for everything that you do. Thanks, buddy, for being my producer and right hand man on all this. You guys, you can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at the Hustle Pod. Um, I don't think we have any bonus material coming up this week, so it's next Tuesday, all right? We'll talk to you then. Love you all.